0: Let's start. Any prayer requests tonight? Kita, <coughs> did you have somebody? Two prayer requests. Yeah. I just found out today that one of my friends has cancer, liver cancer. Her name is Lori. Say Ken. Lori. 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 And then inspire my neighbor. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know, give me sorry. I'm always, you guys are always three steps ahead of me. Lori? Yes. Uh-huh. And then just to inspire my neighbor to do the right. Thing. <laughs> That's a kind one. <laughs> what a kind heart you have. What a kind heart you have. It sounds like there's a story there. <laughs> yeah, and I, this isn't the time to go into it, but... Um, any, any other prayers? Okay. Don't ask if you want to do it. Say from your heart. Oh. What's going on here? Well, I've been having back issues for the last four weeks. So I'm finally going to the doctor tomorrow to find out what is wrong. So, pray your back. Or my back. How about your stubbornness? Should we pray for that? <laughs> hey, Louise, no, I don't think so. <laughs> you finally got around to it? <laughs> Lumbar, uh, middle, or upper? It's my lower back. Lumbar. Yeah. Usually is. Yep. I twisted it when I shouldn't yeah. have. So I don't know if it's something that can be easily done or something. It depends on what you have. Yeah, I know. So. I'm glad you're going to see somebody finally t- to help what you. Well, they say s- you think about three or four weeks sometimes can correct itself. So I'm going to wait. Wow. <laughs> I've had bad problems all my life. I mean, they're not here the way they used to be, but when they were here, they were here. God. I have good pain. Um, I take pain pretty well. So. Yeah, tolerance. Good for you. Twenty-six years with me. Oh, and that to have it in. That's because you are a big pain in the <laughs> somewhere else. <laughs> no, it's them. That's what's causing her back pains right now. It started lower. She L four and L five. Shakespeare would have used that. That's Anybody else. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God. Blessings on this group, genuinely. Blessings on everybody. Thank you for the gift of this day. Um, it was a day, a weekend, in which we celebrate you, Mary. Um, um, it was through you that Christ came to us because of your obedience. What, what to say about that, um, that you would have said yes, We so often want to come up with reasons or ask questions or make sure everything is the way we want it before we'll say yes. Um, You did it and caught the result of it was, the fruit of it was Christ. Thank you, Mary. Um, For your words to us, Christ, um, your offering of yourself today too in the Mass, we're grateful for a number of things, Um, I hope Tracy comes tonight. Um, so that we can say goodbye. We're glad for the safe return of um, David and Millie. Um, and wish them well and everything that's happening with them. Mary um, and... Uh, perfecto. Perfecto. Sorry, Mary. Thank you. Um, Bob and Marcy, I hope things are going well with them, and with Ron, because I know Bob is concerned about him. Um, for Christopher and Kayla. We ask a special blessing on Lori. Got to be frightening news Um, for anybody to hear they've got cancer. Watch over her. Um, You let these things happen for lots of reasons. I mean, some of them we're studying here to remind us that so so much of our attention gets put to the wrong things, we depend on the wrong things and then get knocked off our feet when things don't work out the way we want. We're all going to die, every one of us. Strengthen each one of us to prepare for that, to learn to let go of the world. Help Lori um, find a courage, um, a goodness in this trial. Um, and help particularly her friends to help her see that if it's not easy for her. Um, that that she can see, there's a good sense in this sometimes when it's so hard for us to see it. Um, Whatever pain she experiences, um, um, help her to understand that it takes her closer to Christ and in some way or something going on there, if she will give herself, um, she will find herself closer to Him and she'll find a blessing in it. Valerie, watch over her. Um, she said she's got a good tolerance, and believe her, um, strong person. Strengthen her for this. If um, let the doctors um, have keen minds, um, help them to help her, um, and in whatever pain she has to bear, once again. Um, help her to attach it to you, to find herself being drawn more closely to you, into you, um, by whatever whatever she has to suffer. Um, help Chester be with her in a good spirit in all of this. Um, we offer all of these prayers... Gita's neighbor? Sorry? Gita's neighbor? Oh, God, you say. Um. For Gita, most especially, um, in... Um, difficulties with her neighbor. Um, we we can't choose our neighbors just like we can't choose our family members. We're asked to love, not because it's convenient for us, but in everything we're reading, we're being shown how important it is to bring justice and love together. Help her in these efforts. Give her the courage to bring a justice here where it's. she doesn't always have cooperation, help her, give her courage to do this, and help her to have a good heart so that she grows more deeply into the love that you call her to by whatever effort she makes. Help her to bring her love to everything she does, whatever, however difficult those struggles are. Um, let her know that there's a blessing in this somewhere for her. We offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. <coughs> Let's do the rep. Let's do the rep first. Very, very briefly. I don't want to spend too much time because I'm trusting that you all are going to read this and struggle with it over summer when you've got nothing but time on your hands and. Um, Remember that the background of this was that the Falk laws um, were instituted in Germany. The the state took away, confiscated Catholic properties, convents. Um, The religious orders were being persecuted. The nuns were exiled. They were on their way to America in this ship. They were, they left um, Northern Europe. Um, heading towards the n- northern part of England to go around the island on on the way to America. But the storms came up and drove them south and they ended up at the at the mouth of the Thames. And the mouth of the Thames is famous for um, shipwrecks because there are shoals everywhere. So they hit a shoal and were stuck and the storm took them over and half half the people died. And Hopkins was so upset at the news of this and wondered once again um, how God could allow it. It's the same question Poethius asked. The connections between these things are amazing. I didn't plan this. You know that I planned it because it was so hard and thought it would be a good way to leave the year. Hmm. He's so upset and um, this happens at a time when he himself is struggling with his conversion. We talked about that, he was involved, or he, he was attached, to, identified himself with the Tractarian movement. Um, the, the, I think the lots of members from the Protestant community in England were so upset by the laxness of the Protestant church that they, um, they gathered together to see what they could do to reform it. It gave rise to this Tractarian movement. All of them, most of them, high Anglicans. Um, people who were involved with Oxford, very well-educated, very committed to the Church. They wanted to see the Church reform. But a, a good number of them discovered as they were going back over Church history that the problem wasn't um, in, the, in the specific forms, reforms that they wanted to achieve. It was in the nature of the Protestant Church itself. And the essential problem was um, authority, that um, if, if the king or anybody in England could break off from Rome, then any country could do that. It, it breaks the essential unity of the church. And it's the beginning of a fragmenting that we saw happen historically anyway and that continues today. So a number of broke off and began to write about these differences between Catholicism and Protestantism. And Newman one was uh, the most important. Hopkins followed 20 years later. He, he was raised in an Anglican family, very devoted man, very, very serious, <clears throat> brilliant, like, like Newman, just a really bright young man. He broke off from his family. The family was really upset. It was a tough time for the family. And when he made his conversion, um, it, it changed his life. And one of the results of that is that he decided to become a priest. He thought about moving into the priesthood, but he makes that decision. So, just prior to this, Hopkins is thinking about the priesthood. I, I, I don't have, I'm, I'm not clear on dates and, and particulars, but um, he's already had a number of retreats and he's received the host. So, he's had intense, acutely moving, disturbing spiritual experiences as a part of this conversion, being in the family, going to Christ, thinking about becoming a priest. So in the first part of the wreck, you know that there are these descriptions of flying to the host and the turmoil that he experiences. So um, two things are happening. A personal struggle of his own with God and how a God could allow anything as disastrous as this ship going down, particularly because of the nature of it, that these nuns were forced into exile, um, and, and then reading the news. So in the first section, the, the part that we read last week, he's describing these questions that he's turning over, the personal struggles that he's had. In part two, he begins the narrative of what happens with the nuns. Now, one thing to keep in mind, because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go over this, I'm just gonna read it and let you guys struggle with it. Um, the 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 poem, remember, is not a narrative. It's a, it's a lyric. It's a piece of poetry. It's not a narrative fiction. It's lyri- it's it's a lyric, but it's an ode. It's written for a public occasion. And last week I began by reading those lines from Frost, remember with imic Pentameter? Because I wanted you to have that evenness in your mind so that you would hear the difference when you, start, when you hear Hopkins because the line lengths vary, the number of stresses vary. We've got a very different rhythm here. But it's a lyric, it's an ode. It's written on a public occasion. One thing to keep in mind, the structure of the poem is like a fugue. It's exact, it's modeled on a fugue. Its analogy is music. A fugue is different from other pieces of music in this sense. A fugue begins with a voice announcing a theme, and then um, um, something will be added, another voice will speak to that same theme, and then there will be a resolution. It's exactly what happens here. We get the first theme announced in the first part where he talks about his spiritual struggle. In the second part, you're gonna see we go to the ship and what happens on board ship. There's gonna be a moment when both of those voices Come together. That's the crisis of the poem. We won't get to it here. We'll get to it next week. But those of you who are reading ahead, when you read it, just know it's a fugue. First voice, second voice. The voice that we're going to hear in the second part will be the tall nuns. Um, she's she's going to be going down and she's going to be showing a heroism lots of the sailors don't have. Just an extraordinary creature. And then those two voices are going to come together. And I don't want to speak to that, but be aware of it, be- because it seems to me the the great meaning of the moment rests in that in that moment when it when that happens. Okay. So, part of the second, <coughs> record of the duchess. Some find me a sword. Some the flang and the rail, flame, fang, or flood goes death on drum. It's an image of. Death, carrying these things, announcing its presence. Goes death on drum, and storms bugle his fame. But we dream we are rooted in earth, dust. Flesh falls within sight of us. We, though our flower the same, wave with the meadow. Forget that there must the sour scythes cringe and the blear share come. Death is around us, just as it is for the grass or the wheat when the scythe when cuts it off. On Saturday sailed from Bremen, American outward bound, Take settler and seaman, tell men with women, Two hundred souls in the round. O Father, not under thy feathers, nor ever was guessing, The goal was a shoal, of a fourth a doom to be drowned. It did the dark side of the bay of thy blessing not vault them, The million of rounds I thy mercy not wreathe them in, Even them in into the snow she sweeps, hurling the haven behind. The Dutchland, Deutschland means. In, interesting. One of the ironies of the poem. The poem's called Wreck of the Deutschland. Wreck of the Deutschland. It's the ship. Deutschland means Germany. Deutschland means Germany. So, I mean, one level of the meaning is the wreck of the ship, an implied question about whether this isn't the wreck of Germany thats the, what's going on there gave rise to this occasion. The Dutchland on Sunday and so the sky keeps for the infinite air is unkind and the sea flint flake black backed in the regular blow. Sitting east-northeast in cursed quarter the wind wiry and white-fiery and whirlwind, swivelled snow spins to the widow-making, unchilding, unfathering deeps. She drove in the dark to leeward. She struck not a reef or a rock, but the combs of a smother of sand. Night drew her dead to the knock. She beat the bank down with her bows and the right of her keel. The breakers rolled on her beam with ruinous shock. And canvas and compass, the whirl and the wheel, idle forever to waft her or wind her with, these she endured. Hope had grown gray hairs, hope had mourning on, trenched with tears, carved with cares. Hope was twelve hours gone, and frightful a nightfall folded, rueful a day. Not rescue, nor rescue, only rocket and lightship shone, and lives at last were washing away to the shrouds they took. They shook in the hurling and horrible air. They kept sending up flares, hoping a rescue ship would come, but the nearest rescue point were miles and away, mile and the storm was so bad that ships weren't sent out. One stirred from the rigging to save the wild woman, kind below, with the ropes end round the man, and the embrave. He was pitched to his death at a blow, for all his dreadnought, breast and braids of few, a brave, brave man. They could tell him for hours dandled the to and fro through the cobbled, foam fleece. What could he do with the burl of the fountain of air, buck, and the flood of the wave? You got a picture of this man who tried to help the women attach himself to a rope, and then gets killed. But So picture him, he's, he's hanging, and this wind knocking. Look at Hopkins' verb, dandle dandled the to and fro. A father takes a child on its knee and dandles it. So just remember the violence here. Remember, this, he knows that God's allowing this. So he's, he's, he's describing the violence of this storm, and he's pretty clear on it. But he also throws in a world like that. You know, not, n- n- not accidentally. He doesn't do that. They could tell him for hours, dandled to and fro, through the cobbled, foam fleece. Even that, think about that, because it's you know how it appears, even though it's a violent storm. What could he do with the hurl, burl of the fountain of air, buck and the flood of the wave? They fought with God's cold, and they could not, and fell to the deck, crushed them, or water and drowned them, or rolled with a sea romp over the wreck. Night roared with a heartbreak hearing, a heart broke rabble, the woman's wailing, the crying of child without check, till a lioness arose breasting the babble, a prophetess towered in the tumult, a virginal tongue told. It's like the bell, you know, church bell announcing. Ah, um, uh, t- now, <laughs> remember, he's recalling this. This is it's just a he's recalling this. He's imaginatively living that experience. He's there on the ship. But he also knows he's home in a chair. So he's, he, he's just scathing himself. Touch, are you? You're so sensitive, you know? He's scathing himself right now because he knows that while he's recalling this, he's half mocking himself because he's not there. Ah, touched in your bow or bone, are you? Turned for an exquisite smart, have you? Make words break for me here all alone, do you? Mother of being in me, heart, unteachably after evil, but uttering truth. Why tears? Is it tears, such a melting of a madrigal start? Never eldering revel and river of youth. What can it be, this glee, the good you have there of your own? You all, I hope, take that seriously, because I I hope I'm not misspeaking here. I, I think lots of us, maybe all of us, have had moments when we're trying to do something right, but there's too much of our ego in it. Mm-hmm. And if you're aware, but you're aware how good I am, look at my sensitive heart. And the fact that you're even knowing that means something isn't quite right. So here, once again, this, this fugue, this first voice, now we're going to another. He's approaching the woman, this lioness, and he suddenly backs off and, and is scathing himself. So sensitive, are you? So he's he's aware that he's not there, how sensitive his feelings are, but aware of the difference. She's in real danger. Sister, a, a sister calling. A ma- Think about the double world of that, a calling. She's crying out, but is it a calling too? God's, her call from God sister, a sister calling, a master, her master and mine. And the inboard seas run swirling and hauling, the rash smart sloggering brine blinds her. But she that weather sees one thing, one, has one fetch in her. She rears herself to divine ears and the call of the tall nun to the men in the tops, that the tackle rode over the storms brought. She was the first of a five and came of a coiffed sisterhood. Oh, Deutschland, double a desperate name. There's the pun of that name. Oh, worldwide of its good. But Gertrude, Lily, and Luther are two of a town. Saint Gertrude was German, so was Luther. In his mind, ve- very different, opposite in lots of ways. They come from the same town. Are two of a town, Christ's Lily and Beast of the Waste Wood. From life's dawn. It is drawn down, Abel is Cain's brother, and breasts they have suck the same. But so often people that come from the same root, we saw this at Dante, can reach absolutely different ends. I'm going to stop here. So we're through the first 20 stanzas we have. Why did they want to go to America? That's my point. Why did they go to Italy where that's very Roman? That's um, my question. Bec- because so many people were immigrating to America. Isn't that to be a the country? Well I mean, because I, I just wanna I that's, that well, but that's one of the reasons that they would go is because they want to they want yeah. okay, to so they didn't take the easy way out and go yeah. to Rome. Well, except except I think everybody too I mean when I first started teaching I ended up with the sisters of Notre Dame in California. Immigrant I mean they were the first women coming and I, there were other st- Um, orders of the Sisters of Notre Dame, all of of America, the people were fleeing Europe and Northern Europe, um, England, Catholics, because America had already been founded, there was a toleration for um, religious beliefs here. That's fundamental. It's been looked at as the world of promise. I mean, look at the immigration problem today. People are just, you know... So for the last two hundred years, the place to go for persecution was America because there was a promise. So Okay, let's let's start. We've gotta do before we before we um, start I want to do two things to pick up something. Go back to Boethius. If you have it, Mm -hmm. take a look. If you don't 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 even worry. One of the questions that I asked at the end of our reading of the Night's Tale was we just reached a point where seat and Palamon were doing battle with each other. Our seat won. And by the terms of the, of the ordeal, that's what the medieval fight was called, the ordeal, when knights would fight each other, this joust. According to the terms, they both owed their life to Theseus. They should have been executed properly. He showed them mercy and let them... Um, um, let them engage in a fight to decide who could marry her. Okay. So, um, you know the story, I don't want to go back over it, but Palamon is pulled from the fight and immediately Theseus declares him the winner. And Arcite is dancing, prancing around on his horse, the horse shies, and he's thrown and killed, or, or mortally injured. <clears throat> he has to give himself up Palin was already lost, and then there is this, when, when R.C. dies, there's this great funeral that's held for him, okay? And I, I suggested that one of the things that Chaucer is doing is, is in keeping with Boethius, but you can miss it if you don't look at what Chaucer's doing, and if you don't hear what he's doing, and last time, I, I, on Monday night, I don't think I read, so I'm going to read tonight. Now remember, Chaucer's writing in royal couplets. Heroic couplets. Every two lines rhymes. And I asked the question, is that conducive to a tragic spirit or comic? And I suggested there's no way it can be conducive to tragedy, because tragedy is too serious if you keep running into rhymes. The tragedy verse usually has longer lines and variations, because the sentiments are too great. At least longer lines. Now I want to reinforce it because I want to read some lines so that you'll see. So This is just when at, um, our seed is dying, okay? This is on page 77 if you happen to have the book with you. <clears throat> um, he, remember, he, he wanted nothing more than to have Emily was his life. So he was elated to think that he could finally have his desire. And he dies. And this is what's going on at the moment when he finally dies. And remember, when he dies, he says to Emily, "Let Palamon marry you. He loves you." So both men have had to deny themselves. Even Emily has to deny herself, and and that's where we are at this point. He's at his death, and he goes. This is he goes. This he says these things at his death. Alas the woe, alas the pain so strong that I have suffered for you and so long. Alas, O death, alas my Emily, alas the parting of our company. Alas my heart's own queen, alas my wife, O lady of my heart that ends my life. What is this world? What does man ask to have? Now with his love, now in the cold, cold grave, alone, alone, with none for company. Farewell, my sweetest foe, my Emily. Can anybody read those lines and not laugh? He's writing about somebody dying. It's a grievous moment, but if you listen to the language, it's comic. Everything's, I mean, drama. Somebody used the word drama kingly. It's, look how, look, he's going, look how I'm suffering for you. Alas, the pain that I have suffered for you. You, you know, uh, it's, it's Hopkins back in that chair. Exquisite. So, following this, a couple of pages later, he says, when he's describing the pyre, and remember, a man's dying; he's on the pyre. If this were in an ancient pagan work, it would be a tragedy. the 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 What's the the prototype for this is Hector at the end of the Iliad. Those of you who read the Iliad know when Hector's died. The Iliad ends with um, mourning, lamentations for his death. The Iliad. So the typical response for of a pagan for this would be a lament. A, a eulogy, a lament, a, a, a lyric that was heavier. Okay, We're reading this while this man's dying. Now we're going to get the, the description of the funeral. <clears throat> so he says, um, now I'm going to tell you what to do, and he uses this, the rhetorical vices called um, apoph- apophasis. I used that word when we talked about Eliot because apophatic knowledge is knowledge by negation. It's the kind of knowledge um, that the mystic has. The mystic knows that to get to God, he has to put away everything. He has to. He has to it's a knowledge by remotion. You remove everything in order to get to God. So we can't know God by the things that we do. We know him by things other than that. So it's called apophatic knowledge. It's the knowledge of the mystic. It's also a rhetorical book device we use it all the time. You, Trump used it a couple of weeks ago when when somebody says, I'm not going to tell you what an SOB you are, but well you just told him, mm-hmm. you know, and we do that. I'm not going to say how but we're saying it right in that moment. So we're pretending that we're not, we're trying to act virtuous. You know, look how good I am again. We're trying to act virtuous. What we're doing is hiding it and acting as if we're not. So he's got this, is, this ap- apophasis, this rhetorical device. So he's going to go, I'm not going to tell you about all this because I don't have time. It's not the place. High was the labor, rich was the attire, and the service, and the making of the fire. He goes on, but how they made the funeral fires flame, or what the trees by number or by name. Remember, there's a guy dying on the flames, but she's going to put the flame on. And he's describing what? By what trees by number or what name? Oak, fir tree, birch, aspen, poplar too. Flex and alder, willow, elm and yew, box, chestnut, plain, ash, laurel, thorn and lime, beech, hazel, whipple tree, I lack the time. <laughs> Is anybody watching a funeral going to stop? I'm serious. Until when we're in the we midst of those passions, time. when we're in the midst of those passions, we're going to start writing out the detail of everything that went into that pyre. We don't come away from a funeral describing every little detail, unless there's something wrong with us. Um... I lack the time to tell you, or who felled them. Now he's going to give us a list of who (laughs) chopped down the trees. How their poor... Now this this is funny, because remember, they had to chop down all these trees. So what's Chaucer's response? To tell you, or who felled them. Nor can tell how their poor gods ran up and down the dell, all disinherited of habitation, robbed of their quiet and and in desolation. The nymph and the dryad of the forest lawn, the hemiandriate and the subtle fawn, he goes over. These I pass on, birds and beasts as well. So they're cutting down the woods for the trees, and he's describing the gods that have just been (laughs) disinherited of their their place of habitation. These I pass over, birds and bell. Now what happens if you go back to your book, if you go back to these last pages, almost every other line for the next whole page will be, nor, 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 I'm not going to tell you this, I'm not going to tell you this, I'm not going to tell you this. Nor shall I say how the um, sudden light of the um, unwanted sun felt, nor how the fire was first, nor of the wealth and the splendor of this Paul, nor how Emily, thrust in the fire, a custom was and lit the funeral pyre, nor how she faded when they fed the flames, nor what she thought. It'll go on and on. Nor who supported Emily and kept pace with her homework. It'll go on and on like this. You remember, until finally the, the funeral's over, Theseus will come in and give that extraordinary speech Talking about the prime mover, and it's it's pure Boethius, and it's at it's at that point that he says the only prop we all die, we're all going to have to die. The only response to this is to make a virtue of necessity. I put that on the line because I'd like everybody on the board make a virtue of necessity. What did Boethius say every fortune is good fortune? Mm-hmm. God's in charge. He doesn't let things happen. He's not a malicious God. God only sees good. He's taking the stupid things we do and always trying to bring them to good. Do we see that in the way we go through our lives? Suzanne and I were in New Hampshire years ago when I was teaching out there, and um, she came away from a, a talk with the priest that we both of us just genuinely loved. He was a rare, rare person. And he made the comment to her, to, to always be thankful. I think it just shocked her. Just shocked her. We, I'd never heard it before, she'd never heard it before. It, it really helped change our lives. He said, be thankful for everything that happens. Boethius said that, not that way, but um, every fortune is good. Okay. Theseus, make a virtue of necessity, no matter what happens turn it to good. Who's the exemplar of that? Christ. Crucified, scourged, humiliated on a cross, calling us there to bring justice and love together, both in that act. So all of us are called to bring justice and love together, to go to a cross with him, to suffer into that cross as the condition of learning how to love. So that's the great theme of Boethius. I mean, we've done it now. That you know, we've gone through it. It was wonderful, wonderful reading. And now we get this at Chaucer. So I just want to take a minute because I I don't want this is we're doing Shakespeare tonight. But but we touched on this question. I just want to make sure it's clear before going on. Why does Chaucer do this? In the pagan world, if, if any, if a poet had been describing the scene, it would have been high tragedy. The greatness of these men. They. Offered their lives for this young woman. Um, one one of them won, but had the mischance of, you can hear, you know, you see a poet going on and on. Chaucer's describing a grievous moment, but he's doing it in this manner with these heroic couplets. Why is he doing that? What's the effect of that? Why does he do that? Bob? Yeah. You know, you were saying about why do we see these things that are dumb or that, you know, don't make sense. And I don't think you see them as they're happening, but as you get older in life and you look back, that's when I, you see them. Yeah. It may be too late, but that's when you see them. Right. Well, in some way, yeah, yes. I, I hope. It's, I, I couldn't agree more, David. Uh, Suzanne and I have had so many moments like mm-hmm. that, I couldn't agree more. But, but I think one of the things that comes to us is, not that it's too late, it's that we didn't see it at the time, mm-hmm. but thank God you can see it then, because at least it helps you to see that, because some, I think some people don't see that. And if you do see it, it's 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 like Boethius or Theseus. It it should be a help when we're going through things again, not to respond to them the way we did when we were younger. I mean, Suzanne and I are, you know, we, we um, I'm laughing now. We've got our grandchildren. We had grandchildren the last week, and... you know that, I think you know me by now. I mean, I've told our kids to knock it off. We've got 16 grandchildren and they're not listening to me and I'm telling them we're moving to Alaska if you guys don't stop. (laughs) Because we went through a period in the early years of Jonathan Eminem's life where we were having the kids every weekend. I got to a point of saying to Jonathan, we're raising your kids for you. Um, That's all facetious. I mean, if you know me, you know I'll do that. But one of the things that we're grateful for at this age is that we're able to be with those children as if we were parents, and not do the things we did before? We bring a different spirit because we're so aware of the stupid things we did when we were younger. Amen. Um, anyway, do you all see this? What Chaucer's doing? My question is, what's what's the point of it? How did do, why does he do that? Is he making light of? something that others might see as a great tragedy he's trying to show that even even this death this sad death is is not really so bad because there's more to us than just our earthly life hmm. by the way remember and this is nightgel this is this uh, from the pa- this is Theseus in the pagan world he's going back to this heroic thing. Dante called the divine comedy a comedy. He called hell, hell's part of it, comedic, it's comic. Why could hell be comic to Dante? It would not have been to the pagans. Why is it possible for Chaucer to treat an event like this in a comic spirit when the pagans could not have? I think what he's doing is trying to cultivate um, a sense of intellectual detachment. That's what Theseus brings to what he does. Because remember, all Arsit, Palamon, even Emily, they're so caught up in their own emotions and what they want for themselves that they don't step back. Everything that Theseus does, acknowledges that he went through this period too, but he's capable of bringing a detachment to it, a larger view, to deal with things in ways they're not. So I think one of the effects of this comic spirit that Chaucer brings to what he's doing is that to help us to learn to have a sense of irony, to help to and to feel it. So it's not just this is not just an idea in a head. We're being helped to feel it as we go through this. So um, he's doing what Dante did. He's trying to help us love something. He loves it, or he wouldn't write about it. He loves this stuff. He's a poet. He knows how important these things are. How 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 they can often lead us to be overwhelmed emotionally by what's going on. But he's also helping to cultivate a spirit of detachment, to step back, um, exactly to to, to 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 see what Boethius saw. That every fortune is good. How easy is that to see in the moment? Not. That's what the poets, we've been seeing this from, that's what the poets are giving us. They're they're taking us back to the world, to re-enter the world, concrete experience. Not abstractions, not in our heads, but, but to experience it in a different way. And here in this Christian world, Chaucer's helping us to hold on to a humor, that is, to hold on to a hope and a trust in the providence and a love of good instead of despair or any of the negative feelings that go on. Okay. So I really wanted to emphasize that before we go to Shakespeare because remember, the question was, in Chaucer's Knight's Tale, we're back at the end of the high Middle Ages, we're in a Catholic world, we're about to read Shakespeare, we're on the threshold of the modern world. How does Shakespeare deal with this differently? That was the big question that I sent everybody home with before we, okay? So, okay, very, very briefly, really briefly. Um, Remember, in the Canterbury Tales, Chaucer's giving us a story of these, he says 29 pilgrims, I think there's actually 34, you'll see it in the study guide. These 39, 33, 34 pilgrims are on their way to Thomas Beckett's Shrine. It's a way of paying homage. Chaucer is showing us a whole England. Everybody's there. Every order of class, every sex. Um, he's showing us... This is really wonderful. He shows us a prioress who is very fastidious, very aristocratic in her manners. He shows us a priest and a and a summoner who are... Who are who represent the church in some way, who are some of the, mer- the most immoral characters you will ever meet in life. So he shows this friar, who should be holy and representing God, who cheats people and, um, and monks who do the same. So he's unmasking the church. He's showing all these disorders in the church. You know, here are these people who represent the church and you realize you can't trust them. There, there's almost nobody. The only, if there's anybody lacking, it would be royalty. But everybody else is there, every order of the world. So he's showing us a nation mo- on this journey, this pilgrimage um, to um, St. Thomas' Shrine. So he's showing us a, a, a united England, united in its faith, all levels, all orders, and in a sense he's unmasking it comically. Um, one of the wonderful, at least I'm speaking for myself, here, one of the wonderful things that hit me the first time I read Chaucer. What bothered me is I, I kept reading modern scholars. If you read scholarship on Chaucer, you'll, you'll never hear a note of humor. You'll get these very serious scholars you know, criticizing Chaucer and showing something, but it will all be heavy and intellectual. You can't come away from Chaucer and not laugh. He's just hilarious. Fart. Ass. A, a, a frying, a branding ire on your ass, burning it, smoke going up, adultery in a tree. I mean there's nothing that he doesn't look at humorously. He, he, he is absolutely Catholic. Um, he's showing us a, an England united in its faith. We are in a, a non-Puritan world. We are not there. There's no body part that he, he won't mention. It's, it's delightful, it's all poetic, it's boetes, it's, it's an occasion for good. So he's showing all of England on a pilgrimage. It's epic in the sense that epics are, because it's showing a people enacting its fate. And he's doing it in, with this amazing sense of being able to be very clear-sighted about the stupid things we do, because he's going to expose these people, and still love them. You know? People are not going to cut each other up. They're they're going to go on their pilgrimage. They're going to go there. So, he combines this powerful sense of our foibles, our weaknesses, with this great spirit of love. Comic love. Hope. So, we did the night's Tale and look back. Now we're moving to Shakespeare and Shakespeare's treatment of Theseus. Quick, quick. The world has changed. The Reformation is just taking place. The Copernican Revolution has just taken place. We're in in the beginnings of modernity. Chaucer's world is behind. Shakespeare's on the threshold of a new world. Um, Chaucer's Catholic in this sense, everybody's there in Canterbury Tales. Shakespeare's Catholic, I would argue, in this sense. There's not an important nation in the modern world that Shakespeare does not deal with. The Holy Roman Empire is breaking down. He, t- he, he writes plays on major regimes in Europe right at this moment. So he's looking at the whole world and the inheritance of the West. I've said this before. Three plays on Greece, three plays on Rome, um, plays on France and Navarre and Spain, and as many plays on Italy as England. It's really clear in his mind what, the, what, the, what was at issue in the Renaissance because remember the issue came out of Rome, Dante's Italy is when it begins. And it takes 200 years for the Renaissance movement that began in Dante's time to get to England. And England right now is, in, is enjoying the fruits of it. All the poets are aware of this Renaissance, these changes that are taking place. They're all looking back to Dante and Petrarch and these Italian, po- Italian painting, communes these new communes that are growing out of um, Italy. The world is changing. We've left the feudal world behind. The, the modern states are emerging. Shakespeare's on the edge of it, Schwinn et all. Just very quickly, <coughs> um, one of the things that's important to know about him is that he did two t- tetralogies leading to the Tudor throne because remember, he's under the Tudor dynasty right now. It, it's, it's absolutist in its powers. It's almost totalitarian. It, it's the beginnings of the modern world and the modern state. He wrote two tetralogies, groups of four plays. The first one involved Henry VI, One, Two, II, and Three, and Richard III, who was Shakespeare's picture of the most evil king. I, the only person more evil than Richard is Iago. And it's, I, I said this when we did Merchant of We're gonna do this again. Iago is the evilest character in Shakespeare's play and he's he's in a democracy. I'm going to make the point when we do that, he's inherent in a democracy. Richard III is an evil king, Iago is far worse. My question will be why. What is Shakespeare saying about the modern democratic world? Four plays because it was his way as a younger poet to explain the Tudor power, what led to it. Um, the War of the Roses, the, 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 virtually the destruction of the aristocracy, because they wiped themselves out. The, the two um, lines coming out of the Lancaster line destroyed each other. As he matured as a poet, he realized that the, that the causes, the roots of the Tudor regime, were not the War of the Ro- was not the War of the Roses and the battle between the two houses. It was the usurpation that took place when Bolingbroke usurped power from Richard and took the the throne from Richard II. The second tetralogy is Richard II, Henry IV, Bolingbroke, Henry IV, one and two, and Henry V, which is Shakespeare's treatment of his mind, the best Christian king of all. I mean, the only one that would surpass it would be um, St. Louis, but if you've seen Braniff's movie, Henry V, you know what an extraordinary king he was. And you, you'll miss something because you won't see how Henry Henry is tutored by Bolingbroke and Falstaff in Henry the Fourth, Part One and Two. So as Shakespeare matured, he saw that the that the causes for the Tudor regime, would happened to create this this dynasty, actually had its roots in that moment when Bolingbroke usurped the throne, and Richard claimed the the, the ground of his authority was the divine right of kings. To dispossess a king, to dis- to take his power away, to usurp it, was to do a violence against God. So he's recognizing that there are more than political issues at stake in what's happened to produce this um, Tudor yeah. dynasty. So Shakespeare to me is one of the most extraordinary... Po- he, 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 he. To read Shakespeare is to learn our modern world in all of its complexity. He, he, Nobody's done what he did, what he's done. And he did it on the threshold of modernity. The whole modern world is open to us in what he did. It's just extraordinary. The Theseus story, so Extreme. Here are the major themes. The soul, very, very quickly. Remember Plato's image of the soul. Remember he said in, in the, faith, the Phaedrus, The soul is a charioteer who's got two horses. The charioteer's reason, and he's trying to control two horses, a black horse and a white horse. The white horse is the power of the soul that desires good things. The black horse is the the desire of the soul for the appetitive things, the things of the body. Plato didn't trust the body. The charioteer has to learn to govern this chariot by controlling it. He controls the dark horse by means of this white horse, but he has to pull them together. That's his image of the struggle of the soul. The reason has to control these desires that the soul has. In the Republic, he says that there are three faculties to the soul, the rational, thymus. we've talked about this, or anger, and the appetites. And the distinction is here. He's very clear in this. You come to a um, water in a desert. You're you're dying because you have you have quenched you have any water. You come up to water and you want your body wants to drink, but there's a sign there that says poison. So you know that there's there's desires in conflict because one desire says drink. The other desire says, don't. So that's just a a basic kind of illustration of the conflict in the soul. His understanding of the soul is this, reason had to control the appetites by means of this middle element. Both of these you can call um, the faculties of eros, of desire. The difference is there's a part of the soul that directs his desires towards noble things, goodness, honor truth, beauty, so on the transcendentals. same for Thomas, same Thomas, truth, beauty, oneness, okay? That there's a part of the soul that longs for beauty, truth, goodness. There's a part of the soul that wants to satisfy the physical things, cake, wine, candy, chocolates, fucking, I'm giving away my own soul right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and wait, let me give a better example, because he would, Lewis does this, Lewis is talking, those of you who know Abolition of Men, Lewis is drawing heavily on Plato here in his argument. Put two lovers in front of a television, remember Francisco and Paolo, Begin beginning of hell. Put two lovers in a in a living room, their parents are gone, there's a sexy movie on remember Paolo and Francisco were reading The Lancelot, um, Guinevere, Adultery, and they said, and there was no more reading that night. They stopped. Um, put two lovers in a, in a living room with a romantic movie on. The parents are gone. Both of them are very moral. How much strength will they have in the powers of reason because they know it's not it's wrong to have sex? How much power will they have from their reason to control their appetites? Is reason strong enough to do it? It, it, you know it's bad to steal, I gave you my example, I stole an iPhone, you know it's wrong to steal. Is reason sufficient to say to you, it's strong enough to say, don't steal, and it's no. I'm hoping everybody sees. You can know it's wrong to do it and knowing it doesn't, because if there's a will to do something, do it. The question is this middle element. How well developed is this in the human soul? Lewis makes the argument of some. If this element isn't well-developed, there's no way this will not take over reason. Yeah. Every, should... work, wait, wait. Every work we've read has shown that very often reason gets used in the service of this. We rationalize, we accuse, we blame, we make excuses. We use our reason and it gets arrested by this. So Plato's understanding of the soul is the, pro- the well-ordered soul, reason rules this through this. Uh, what we've got—wait, one What we've got in the city here are Theseus, the lovers, and the mechanics—the three orders of the soul, the three classes of people that line up with what's going on. What Shakespeare is doing is showing the dynamic, the truthfulness of what Plato is showing through the struggles that occur here. And the proper ordering, bringing these all into the city so that there's a well-ordered city at the end of this work. Okay, but um, everything that's happiness, and you know the lovers are okay, the mechanics have a place, the rulers are there. Uh, well, I can't read the word, the two words under reason. Between reason and happiness. Here? Yeah, that one. seamless members. Seemless, anger. Okay, thank you. See, what was the word that Plato used? The, it's the spirit. Achilles, spiritedness. Remember Achilles? Mm-hmm. The, he's, he's motivated by spiritness, his anger when Agamemnon takes his woman away. And mm-hmm. spiritedness is that spiritness in the soul that gives us the strength to fight um, when something goes wrong. When you said uh, the anger, you mean managed or controlled you said developed you said this that middle part has to be developed right do you mean controlled or managed right ordered ordered okay i want to i want to be careful because for the poets it's not a technical thing get involved go back to the iliad you can take any you you can take any play we're reading They, they all have it um, you can't, you cannot say when you start the Iliad that um, Achilles sees in the beginning what he learns to see at the end. Exactly what you were saying a while ago, David. Is his anger out of control? No. Is it? Um, is is it going to cost something? Yes. At the very beginning, when Agamemnon takes his woman, and and Achilles, this is king, um, and. Um, He says, you can't do that, and the king does it anyway. Athena comes to him because Achilles starts to pull out his sword to kill his king, and she says, don't do that. You will get your honor back. This whole thing's about honor. So he's going to have to suffer. He's going to have to be alone. If those of you who have read the Iliad know, he's going to lose his best friend, and he's going to hold himself responsible for it. So... Um, and and when he goes back to the war, he's the spiritedness is still with him. He's he's in a battle. He's going to fight people. So spirited is not in itself bad. Anger, we know this from Aristotle. Ang- anger is the rectum of <coughs> virtue. It's natural. It's good. It it helps us defend. It helps us. It helps us in our pursuit of the good. <coughs> to overcome obstacles. It helps us to fight off those things that threaten the good. Robert comes into your house. Somebody who's not angry, or something wrong. If your family's threatened, if you don't have something in you to yeah. stop it, but you have to temper. It's balance. It's everything. Is right. The only what I want to do right here, here, because I, because this, and I don't want to take time. Remember, in the, in Dante, wrath is a sin. That's a word describing an excessive anger. Anger is not a sin. It's the rectifying virtue. Everything in the modern world does everything it can to get anger out of the way. Bureaucracies don't want it. Why? They want somebody questioning what they're doing? They want some Achilles standing up and saying, you can't do this? The most threatening thing to workplaces is anger. People want to get it out of the way. Wrath, rage, shootings, That's a different order. What Plato's showing in the order of the soul, it's rational, it's spirited, it's appetitive. The rational is superior to the emotional, the affective, the appetitive. The rational is superior to the emotional, the affective. It's the guiding, it's what guides. But for a soul to be a healthy soul, those things have to be properly ordered. You can have a rep. If, if we do Dostoevsky, Russ in a couple was a modern rationalist. He was in his head. He didn't have a good heart. I mean, we know intellectuals who live in their heads too much. Who don't? Their heart. We say their heart's are not in the right place. They can make all the defenses of the world. They're stupid people, educated, well educated, articulate. I know we've all met people like that. Plato saying the rep, the, the well, the virtuous man. Has learned to order his soul. What we've got in this play, uh, *Midsummer Stream, is a city at the end, just as we did in in Chaucer's. But in Shakespeare, there's a greater awareness of an ordering of the parts of the city, the three classes of the city, the ruler, the nobles. Put it this way: Are the mechanics going to kill themselves over love? What drives them is money. I mean, when Bob, when Bottom returns at the end, you know one of the other characters going, thank God, because now we'll get our money. If he'd not come here, Bottom would have lost seven pounds a year or you know. What's their preoccupation? Why are they doing the play? Because they love art? Um, no. It's, remun- it's remuneration. They want to be repaid. The mechanics are driven by appetites. The lovers are noble. But we know from Chaucer and Shakespeare, that the noble passions can be destructive, pride gets in the way, and awful things can happen. Okay, so the city, the theme of the eyes—you can't read 20 lines in this play without coming across the eye. The love potion is put on the, on the eyes. Eye, but, yes. Yeah. Why? <laughs> because what awakens des- what awakens desire in the soul is beauty. And we take, if, if, if that isn't obvious, watch commercials on television. Hmm. <laughs> and how many commercials show, a, they're selling a car, a home. Insurance. Name your, yeah. And the means of doing it? A beautiful woman. She can be absolutely unrelated to what's going on, but her beauty is there again and again and again and again and again. Like flow. Like, <laughs> well, maybe not. <laughs> flow. Maybe not. Flow, but <laughs> Sorry, I'm out. Who's that? She, she, insurance. Insurance. she said Sorry? insurance. Yeah, I wasn't thinking flow. of flow. <laughs> anyway, you all know what I'm talking about. One of the ironies for me is that women talk about power today. I know. Going into politics Is if politics is going to make them powerful. Does it ever, I mean, By virtue of women being women, they have more power imaginable on this earth. Um, Anyway, so the eyes are crucial. The eyes are crucial. And you know that the drops are put on them, and and as soon as they are, the person who has them is. So, and I want to get to that because that's only the first, that's on the surface. Because we're going to have to ask the question, what is that love potion? <laughs> the sexual differences. <laughs> get these. Don't put these two. God, why is it always this table? until he sat next to me. <laughs> Yeah, you and Eve. You gotta get your uh, finest Here, come on, come on. Okay. We we don't have much time, both of you. <laughs> the sexual, the disorders between the sex, sexes have been with us from the beginning. Iliad, Helen and Paris. Odysseus in his trap, it's, it, we've not had a work in which that's not been a, a concern. Chaucer's, um, the night's Tale*, *Palamon or Seat, see this beautiful woman, there it is again, they see, and both of them want to be there. When our Seat leaves, he wants to be back so he can look at her, because seeing beauty in front of us, a beautiful car, a beautiful home, a painting, the way a house is arranged, we so take it for granted today. Take beauty out of us and we will be desolate. Take beauty out of our lives. It's so important. But the, at the beginning of the play, um, Theseus and Hippolyta have come out of a battle. They fought each other, just as in uh, the night tale. Theseus conquered her and they are preparing for a, meeting, a wedding. Um, the two couples fight. As couples um, and the fighting is resolved by the end of it. The place of the supernatural, it's not obvious here but I want to touch on it. You know that the end of um, Chaucer's Knight's Tale that we are meant to have from Boethius the sense of a providence at work. Remember in Boethius there was a providence and fate Fate was the order of things here where people get caught up in things and, and things get determined. Providence shows us there's another way of understanding. The whole point of Boethius was we don't, we don't understand what's going on until we learn to see clearly. What's at issue with that work is knowledge, the way we know. And remember he made that distinction between the senses, the imagination, reason, and intellect, intellectus. It's very much to the point here. But we, we will never get straight on things until we see, till we understand how we know. And we spent time with Adam Boethius, so I don't want to go into that. But you remember in, in Boethius, there was a distinction between providence, the way God sees, and the way we see in time. Um, the, the the comic aspect of this here, you, you could miss it, but, I, but I, I want to touch on it. You know that over on... Puck carry on this work in the forest. And it's by virtue of that work that the lovers can return to the city. That's a major part of the action. I'll get to it in a second. But we know that. Oberon and Titania are um, archetype figures, sexual. They're quarreling, too, when the play starts. By the end of the play, that quarrel is settled. And It isn't until that quarrel is settled that the quarrel between the lovers is settled. So what happens in the forest is crucial. The lovers can't get back to the city until the action in the forest. It all depends on what's going on there. So we have to ask what's going. What is what is that for Shakespeare? One of the things that goes on in that is that you know that (laughs) Puck puts a ass's head on Bottom exactly at the moment when he's being an ass. So it's I want to look at that scene. It's no accident he comes back and they all make fun because they look at him as being an ass and so he comes back with an ass's head on. When he comes out of the dream when Puck takes it off and he goes back <clears> he said I've had a most marvelous dream I want to tell it to Quince so he can write a play about it. Quince says not now. But Bottom can't do enough. We know people like that. They, they just sometimes you <laughs> want to get people out of your hair because there are certain individuals once you let them in your life there's not enough for them to do. Mm-hmm. They just won't stop. <laughs> it's it's bottomless arrows. That's his okay. That's bottom. But he comes back and he said, "I had this most rare dream." And he says, "I hath not heard, ear hath not seen." What's that from? The Bible. The, um, What's it from? It's a Psalm. Oh, well, besides the Bible. Yeah. it's Paul's vision when Paul yeah. comes back and he says Revelations, well it's Paul's but yeah. he says I have not seen ear hath not heard what, what God, God has, has read it. Right. For those right. but notice what bottom does with it I have not because <laughs> he does this with language I have not heard ear hath not seen so Shakespeare's playing but but clearly something's happened with bottom he's bottomless arrows. And he's a fool. And the words from Paul about a supernatural revelation is coming to us through him. So what's Shakespeare doing with all of this stuff? Okay? So, um, Shakespeare is taking up every one of the concerns that Bowie, or Chaucer had in The Knight's Tale, but he's dealing with them completely differently. Okay? Now, I want to. Um, I want to go through. I want to go through the. Um, should I do the readings first? Let me do the readings first. Let me stop for. I'm going to. Ju- I'm going to very quickly go through passages just for you guys to have the language in you because you know how important that is. But before I do, any, any questions about any of this? These are some of the major themes that Shakespeare's working with. <coughs> when I'm done going through the readings, I'll t- here's my question. What's the differences between what, Chauc- what Chaucer does and Boethius does? How does- it's so clear that, that Shakespeare learned from Chaucer. So clear. He takes the Theseus theme... Remember that one of the one of the major themes that we talked about here, I didn't cover it here, I should have, but one of the things that Chaucer does is go back to the founding. He is the founder of Western civilization. He's the founder. Chaucer goes back, and Chaucer renews. It's a refounding. And we saw at the end of our work last week that the basis of the refounding was Christian. It was only when the lovers renounced their own wills, When only when they gave up what they... Both of them make this argument. I'll be happy when my freedom, when I have my freedom so I can choose. Chaucer blasts that out of the water because when they have their freedom and they get what they want, they're miserable. That's Boethius's argument. Remember mm-hmm. that we think when I get this, money, beauty, possessions, all be okay. everything will be happy. Mm-hmm. What, what Chaucer, what Boethius showed us is not until we have The first good that's sufficient in itself, that's intrinsically good, that's imperishable, will we be happy? So freedom for Boethius is intrinsically connected to our human condition. Our loves on earth have to be tempered. Whatever that good is. If they ever become more important than a final good, we're setting ourselves. We're going to be living with misery. That's what happens day to day. So Boethius is pretty clear in that. Chaucer does the same thing in what he does by putting both men in prison. Right? They've lost their freedom. They see this beloved. Our seat's free. First thing he wants is to be back in prison. What is Paladin wants when our seat is free? He wants to be out thinking if I'm out. They're both living in illusion. <coughs> we watch what their desires, their desires do to the way they see things. It's only when, it's only when they give up their desires that they can love freely in a way. It's as if it, it humbles them, the, the anger, the, you know, the pride with which they go after each other, they, the way they're ready to kill each other, so that you, you learn, instead of going, I deserve this, when you take that away and you've already lost it, then you can begin to love this idea that I deserve this, you know, the source of so much pride and anger in us. Um, so what Chaucer does is take that, the pagan treatment of a founding and baptizes it, Christianizes it. He, he makes it Catholic. Um, he shows that real love doesn't come to us except by with Christ to renounce ourselves. and So that's the end of the night set. So the question here is what's Shakespeare doing? Shakespeare's going back just the way Chaucer did to a refounding. He's going to refound the city. What's the difference between the way he refounds it and Chaucer? That's our major question, okay? So I'm gonna go through these readings, but the question I want to come to is how are the two books different? Where do they line up? But more importantly, what's the difference between them? What is Shakespeare doing that's different, okay? But let me stop before I do the readings. Any any Questions on just this general stuff. Yeah. Sorry. Why does he use this whole thing about um, the fairies and that type of fantasy world? Why is that part of it? Why is that necessary? Wait. Save, you know, Wait. I'm sorry, because we're going to go there. Okay. That's the one but, thing. That's you're there. good. Just cutting back here. You when you look at the city, remember <laughs> that. There's two things. One, we saw the order of the soul. Plato said, Plato said, any time a regime, the importance of the republic is this, it was important to understand the nature of the soul, because Plato knew that there was something wrong with most regimes, that they were despotic, tyrannical. He knew that if you didn't have an understanding of the nature of the soul, if you didn't have an understanding of the nature of the human being, it, um, you might create a polity, a political structure that would be at odds with it. So anytime somebody has a political structure that's at odds with the soul, it's setting up its own destruction. Just think about the laws that we have, slavery, abortion, Are those laws in accord with our nature? Do people really understand the nature of the human person when they enact laws? Plato's argument was no. We have to understand the nature of the human soul, because if we don't, we will screw things up. So this scheme is really important. The other one is, when we think about the city in Mitzvah-Extreme, Shakespeare does this in almost every play. There's two worlds. There's the city. And the forest. And the forest, um, it's Valerie's question. (coughs) There are all these things going on with Oberon and Titania and the fairies. What's going on? Hold on. Let me just say this and then, because it's going to get to the major question. One way of looking at the forest is that it's a world of the imagination. It's working with images and shadows and dreams. It's where those things go on. And I'd like to leave it there. But, but the important thing to see here at this point is the lovers can't get back to the city without what happens in the forest. Because Hermia's life is just like so many other lives. It's, it's, a, it's a, like um, Palamon on her seat. She's lost her life. She either obeys her father or she's dead. Or she's going to be put in a nunnery. So they can't get back to the city without what happens there. So it's absolutely crucial to look at that. Okay? You can just wait on it for a second. I'm going to quickly go through passages, okay? I'm going to try to run through them. Um, Act 1, Scene 1. Ten lines in. Um, or the opening. Now, fear Hippolyta, our nuptial hour draws on a pace. Our happy days bring in another moon, but Omi thinks how slow this old moon wanes. The moon. He's just introducing the moon imagery because you know that everything that happens in the forest is going to be done in moonlight, and the moon is usually associated with insanity, madness, or what's outside the law, because the city is a place of law. What's going on in the forest is takes place in a in a world of the imagination, moon, shadows. Okay four days will quickly them. Sh- sh- she's just encouraging them saying just wait we'll be okay be patient Theseus sends Philistrata off to 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 um, encourage the town to come up with this drama and then um, Theseus says to Paul Apollod- that I wooed thee with my sword and one thy love doing the injuries but I will wed thee in another key with pomp with triumph and with reveling I'm going to give away one of the major differences here because I'm we want to be careful of the end. One of the fundamental differences between Chaucer and Shakespeare. The whole action in Chaucer moves towards the ordeal, the fight between Palamon and Arsip. Remember, the whole third book was devoted to descriptions of the theater. So it was the big deal. What's at the center of that world is the ordeal. That the only way to settle this joust between these two men, because they're both too proud... <coughs> is to set up a, con- a contest, let them settle it, and let the winner, okay, it's an appeal to their pride. Each of them thinks they can win it. <coughs> What's the central action of Ninsert's Dream? A wedding, a wedding. Everything that's going on is pointing towards the end of the play, the wedding, and the 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 poetry, the the story that the mechanics will put on in celebration of the wedding. So in place of a joust, a battle, an ordeal, two men fighting according to the chivalric ideal of knighthood, it's marriage. Theseus and Hippolytus' marriage, the marriage of the lovers. All the differences, all the quarreling, the fighting is resolved. So it ends in unity and um, amicability, accord, and the cities that accord, which, you know, the three orders of the city. So, what Shakespeare is doing here is showing an order coming to the souls of lovers, passions are coming up, and a right order to the city. Okay, So, very different action right from the start an ordeal, battle, a wedding. Um, Immediately, Aegeus comes in and says to Theseus, um, My daughter is disobeying me. Demetrius is a favorite of his. He wants her to marry Demetrius. Demetrius um, loves her, but she doesn't love Demetrius. She loves Lysander, so she says, I love him. And notice the, that um, Aegeus' accusations about line 125. Lysander, thou hast given her rhymes, and interchanged love tokens with my child. Mm -hmm. Thou hast, by moonlight at her window, sung feigning voices, verses of feigning love. What's the problem? Poetry. (laughs) He's been wooing her with poetry, and we all know how. Bad that is. Yes, good. (laughs) You know I'm be (laughs) (laughs) You also know I include music and poetry. So. Go on about line 55 or so. Hermia said, he, because Aegeus says, see with my eyes, I'm your father. Theseus, he makes an appeal to Theseus. Hermia, I would my father look but with my eyes. Rather, your eyes has to look with his jo-. Over and over and over again, from that point on, you're not going to read 20 lines, 30 lines, without coming across the word eyes. Shakespeare's drawing our attention to the Power that beauty has because beauty comes through the eyes. When we see it, it has a powerful effect. We knew that from the Iliad, we knew that from the Odyssey. Um, Theseus says to Hermia, Obey your father's will. Your father's will is law. Obey him or else. Good on unre, or you die. He leaves. And the interesting thing, Theseus is a real, Shakespeare knows what he's doing as leader. What does Theseus do? He says, "Egeus, Demetrius, come with me and he says, I'm going to school I have some schooling to do." So, so clearly he's enforcing the father's will the implication seems to be that he's not at ease with the situation so he's going to go talk with these two men. Going over on um, about line 200 Hermian help, now Theseus and his train go off. Theseus goes off. <coughs> um, Hermia and Lysander are left alone. <coughs> Lysander says to Hermia that he knows an ant in the forest, and if they go to her, she'll, she'll protect them, and they can marry there and live without threat, and she won't have to worry about losing her life or going to a nunnery. Hermia and Helen, Helen, a quarrel, Helena comes in. She says about line 200, <clears throat> Hermia, his folly, Helena, is no fault of mine. None but your beauty would that fault were mine, because Demetrius loves Hermia. Mm-hmm. None but your beauty. Take comfort; he no more shall see my see my face. There it is. Ly- Lysander, myself will fly this place before the time I did. Lysander see seemed Athens as a paradise for me. Here's one of the initial dangers. One of the greatest threats to the city is love. Because once you fall in love, that love becomes more important to the city. Just a side note here, because we know that the lovers are going to get back to the city. Every, that is, remember, one of the issues here is how to make a well-ordered city. What does a ruler do? The situation at the beginning is the city is more important than love. If she doesn't obey her father, she's dead. We've seen that again and again in Shakespeare. Here, she says the city was everything until she fell in love. So love can actually be a threat to the city, as we see in the opening situation. Okay, So that's a problem that's gotta be resolved. Athens um, seemed, Lysander C seemed, Athens as a paradise to me, oh then what graces in my love do dwell that he hath turned a, he- a heaven into hell. Um, the lovers go off leaving Helena And um, line 230, Demetrius thinks not so, he will not know what all but he do know, and as he errs doting on Hermia's eyes, so I admiring of his qualities, things base and vile, holding no quantity, love can transpose to form and dignity, love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind, and therefore is winged and cupid painted blind, nor hath love's mind of any judgment take. That is, the mind gets in the way. What she's doing is saying um, love, I mean, interesting, she's saying love looks not with the eyes but with the mind. Can you say of any of the lovers at this point that any of them look at love with the mind? They're all rooted in their passions. They're taken over by their passion. They don't see very well. the The mechanics come on and say they're going to do this play. Mm-hmm. I wish we had, I really wish we had time to do this. We don't. One of the interesting things that takes place in this opening is the way in which they talk about how you represent something. One character's got to come in to represent the wall. Another character's got to come in to represent... Th- 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 listen, because Shakespeare's... You can laugh at it and come out of the theater and miss a million things. Shakespeare's dealing with this question, how do you represent something in good art? And what will its effect be? And I'm asking this seriously. Does Does he, as a poet, so represent things that he's faithful to what's actually there, and do it in a way that will bring everybody together at the end. So all this nonsense about how you represent something is good comedy, but it's also, and it's coming from the mechanics, who are not very intelligent, but he's dealing with the most profound things, the way he does. In Act 2, we see Titania and Oberon quarreling. The issue is, this is really important, Titania wants the boy because of her love of another woman, a woman who is a devotee of her order. Um, Oberon wants him because it's a boy. Watch the way Titania deals with uh, Puck, bottom, sorry, not Puck, watch the way she deals with bottom. Because she tends to dote, the, the, the feminine, the, the nurturing in her is so strong that she wants to look out for him. She wants to take care of this boy. The question that I think it's, it's raising here is, at some point, how important is it that a boy be raised, taken under the leadership of a man? Because he's, if he's left in the care of a woman with her nurturing qualities, what will the effect be? So, one of the things that Shakespeare is exploring is this quarrel that goes to sexual differences. One of the differences, one of the qualities that both Oberon and Titania have is that each one is related to the opposite in the Theseus Hippolyta pair. He says on line 65, Act 1, Scene 2, um, Oberon, am I not thy lord? This is about line 65 in Act 2, Scene 1. Then I must be thy lady, but I know when thou hast stolen away from fair land and in the shape of corn all day long, playing on pipes of corn and visiting love to amorous uh, Philita, Where art thou here? Oberon, how can thou cast for shame to Tanya? glance at my credit with Apollo, knowing I do as thy love to Theseus. Each one of them is identified with the opposite sex. This is centuries before Jung. Jung says every, every man... And woman have an animus and an anima in their souls. Every woman has an an animus, the male counterpart. Every man has an anima, a female counterpart. One of the struggles that every human being has within his soul, this is Jung, is to resolve those two, bring them together. So what's interesting here is that Titania supports Oberon Oberon, I mean Theseus, Oberon supports, looks after Hippolyta. So in one sense in the forest there are images of some archetypes that are a part of every human soul. So this is centuries before Jung. Jung, um, But they're quarreling here. Um, Oberon wants the boy, she won't give it to him. Um, The boy was a son of a a woman that she felt closely to and they're quarreling, she won't give up she won't give him up. Um, crucial, Act 2, Scene 1, about line 160. Oberon says to Puck, go pick out this flower because he wants to use it on Titania's eyes. He knows that when he puts it on her eyes, she'll fall madly in love with the first thing in front of her. And you know what happens, you're going to put it on um, Lysander's eyes by mistake when Helena comes up and Lysander's going to fall madly in love with her. But take a look at this. He says, go, go get this potion, about line 160, act 2, scene 1. But I might see young Cupid's fiery shaft quenched in the chaste beams of the watery moon, and the imperial votress passed on in maiden meditation fancy free, fancy free, free of poetry. Yet marked I where the bolt of Cupid fell. So Cupid shot an arrow. It landed in nature. You know Cupid is Aphrodite's son, the, the god, the god of love. It mark it I where the bolt of Cupid fell. It fell upon a little western flower, not eastern, western. Before milk white, now purple with love's wound, and maidens call it love and idleness. Now hold on to that because that's all symbolic. It's he doesn't give anything away. Cupid shut this bolt, lands on a flower, it turns purple from a wound, okay, it was white. So it's a mixed color. Lovers call it, people call it love in idleness. When that potion is put on somebody's eyes, they don't, okay? Now, um, you know what happens. Puck puts it on Lysander's eyes by mistake. Lysander falls in love with um, Helena. And um, Oberon puts it on Titania's eyes And when the mechanics are rehearsing, (laughs) um, Bottom leaves for a moment and then comes back with an ass's head, and um, Titania will wake up and see Bottom and fall in love with an An ass. ass. Going over to Act 3, Scene 1. Well, that's a lot different from the Knight's (laughs) Tale. Yes. yes. Line 85, Act 3, Scene 1. They're rehearsing the play, the mechanics that come into the force, they're rehearsing the play. Theseus says, most radiant Pyramus, most willy, lily white of hue or color, most brisky... Ju-. Remember, this is this is um, Bottom now, who, who loves everything and wants to do everything, and dear Thier- is declaring her love for him. I'll meet thee, Pyramus, in Nini's tomb. Um, now, Pyramus, just a few lines above it, said... So harsh thy breath, my dearest, this be dear, but hark a voice! stay thou here a while, and by and by I will to thee appear. Now, remember, bottom is going on almost everything that goes on. It so says, let me do this, let me do this, do it this way, I want it this way. He leaves, when it comes back, he's got an ass's head on. I think it's important for us to remember he's being an ass all the time. It's just comic, so we laugh at it. But he, there's nothing he doesn't want to take care of. Bottom when he comes back, line 107. As soon as the people the, the mechanics see him, they run away because they're frightened. 107. Bless me, Bottom, bless thee. Thou art translated. I see their knavery. This is to make an ass of me, to frighten me, if they could, but I will not stir from this place. So Titania's gonna I mean yeah, Titania's gonna wake up and she will dote on him. Um but it's comic to see they're trying to make an ass of me because, in one sense, even though he can't see it and we should, he's doing that a lot comically. I want to get to the end because um, I've, I've got to get to these questions. You know what happens. Um, Bottom gets taken into Titania's train. The next time we see him, he's asking all of the fairies to pet him to go fetch something, scratch me here, scratch me there. Um, he's just spoiled and um, luxuriating and she's doting on him wanting everybody to do everything for him Um, and it's during this time we learn that Theseus takes the boy he makes Titania aware of her foolishness and their quarrel is resolved finally um, um, Oberon will say to Puck um, take this potion and put it on Demetrius's eyes, and make sure that Helena comes along, so he fall in love with her, and he will put a, a cure, a cur- another potion, on Lysander's eyes to remove the effects of that that love potion. Um, so the lovers become they're they're going to fight with each other in the forest. Um, I've got to go through this quickly because I've got to get to these questions. They'll fight with each other, and finally they'll settle. In the early dawn hours, they're all together. The, the disorders have been answered. Theseus will come to the edge of the forest and you will see the lovers and they'll all be fine. Aegeus says, like Shylock in Midsummer Night's Dream, those who done, I want the law. Theseus already learned from the lovers because Demetrius says, I found my love. He's with Helena. Lysander's disorder, doting love, has been removed. He, um, he's with Hermia. The lovers have learned to see their disorders Every one of them. They've quarreled with the fe- the female with the female, the male with the male, the between the sexes. They've quarreled among themselves endlessly, so they've had to confront their passions and give them up to be restored. Um, yeah. But with the work of Oberon. Yeah, okay, so yeah they these- had to have true. Yes, I know, I know, Extra. I know, I know, no. I know yes. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they come to the, Theseus and his train come to the edge of the forest, and Aegeus says, I want the law. Um, on page, or I'm sorry, Act 4, Scene 1, um, the lovers are all declaring that they're fine. Aegeus says, enough, enough, my lord. You've had enough, I beg the law, the law upon their head. Demetrius says he loves Helena. He doesn't want to marry her for me right now. Theseus goes, "Fair lovers, you are fortunately met. Of this discourse, we will more here and on. Aegeus, I will overbear your will. Stop for a minute because this is too crucial. Lots of people look at Theseus as being contradictory. Is he? I want to get to the. We've got to. We've got to get to the most important questions here. But is he? Is he contradicting himself? He supported Aegeus in the beginning, and now he's saying, no, I do overbear you. Is he being contradictory, or is he doing something as a leader that he should do? Doing something as a leader that he should do. What is it? Everything in balance. Right. What? She said everything in balance. Mm-hmm. She said everything in balance. Okay. What I... Why. <laughs> well... What's it how's he doing? What's the difference here? What's going on? He's kind of letting them work it out instead of just Or it has but, been worked out and love is ordered. Right. They're all for, right. For, If he were to go against this now, he'd be forcing marriages on both of them and making things worse. Right. Their loves are ordered. What he's what he's doing is giving political sanction to well-ordered loves. That is he's wise enough to see the end of these relationships is love. If he were to go against it, he'd be going against <coughs> Demetrius, Helena, he'd be going against all four of them, forcing them forcing them into loves that would make them worse. So it seems to me he's showing the wisdom of the importance of love, particularly at this point, because now they can come back, the city and the lovers will be in accord. Now, here's, I'm just going to, I want to get to the end, I want to raise this question because it's major in the middle of the play that the mechanics put, you know they go back to celebrate the wedding feast and the the mechanics put on the play in the middle of the play we see Thisbe and Pyramus coming to a wall seeing the wall and the wall is associated with the father's law that's made clear in that prologue and they're separated. When Theseus sees that, uh, I mean Pyramus sees that is gone, he kills himself she kills herself both of them kill themselves they're going to meet at at Ninus's tomb Ninus is the legendary founder of um, Nineveh his wife Sarumanus was the legendary founder of Babylon in the east the lovers don't get back Absolutely crucial, because remember one of the tensions here is between love and the city. In the East, the lovers don't get back, they're dead. In the West, they do. The, the four lovers go back. Theseus and Hippolyta are resolved. Oberon and Titania are reconciled. What's happened here in the forest that makes it possible for love to reach its fulfillment and get back under law. Let me put this differently. In in the East, love and law are never reconciled. We know this already. The law is greater. Islam, Judaism. In Christianity, love was was greater and made it possible to fulfill the law. So in Christianity, the law and love I hope everybody's getting this, because this is absolutely crucial. In Christianity, love and law are reconciled. Christ didn't undermine them. He said, I came to fulfill the law. He didn't undo it. The law and love are reconciled with a power greater than the law. In the East, love is hurt still. It goes to, this goes to my question about the human person that I want to touch on next week. What makes it possible for these the couples here and all the others to get back to the city? To answer that, we have to go to the forest. What is Shakespeare doing in the forest? Is everybody following this? How important is is the is? Is forest sort of like a reconciler type of, of environment? Does it help them to reconcile and find the things of value? It obviously is, but how? What's going on? This forest is not supposed to be evil. I don't think so, but it's but it's in. It, That's what I'm saying. It has the same story. But it's got it's really. I mean you're, I, I hadn't thought of that, but I, I think you're so right in this sense. Our natural, our natural beginnings, origins, was more natural. The city is an artificial thing. Right, man. man. So there's yeah, there's a there's a contrast here. I, but I think there's a truth to that. That Shakespeare chooses a natural order, <coughs> in which this stuff is to take place. Okay. What's going on? Who is Oberon? Who is Titania? What is it that O, Ober- cause Oberon in the forest is like Theseus, in- wait, I want to put this, it's only because of what Oberon does, what he does. Remember, like lady philosophy, mm-hmm. the, this, the detached, the detached intellect, in this case it's a man, it's only because of what he does that the lovers get married. And it's what he does with Titania that reconciles them. It's only because of what they do that Theseus and Hippolyta I mean, the marriage is consummated afterwards. So, and the lovers. Um, what what is it that Oberon does? Who is he? What is that love potion? Because it's the way that he uses. And remember, it has a different effect on everybody. It it makes everybody dote, but it helps. It helps everybody back into their right relationships. So, who is Oberon? Symbolically, and what is that love potion? This thing that C- Cupid, the god of it's white, turns to purple, which is blood. Is oh. that the white with the Christ and the white and the blood potion? Is that? Like, like the potion is, is grace? grace? No, is body, blood, Christ, blood. Is Who's Oberon? Jesus, yeah. That's- <laughs> Isn't it no? No. Wait, don't be, be careful because when critics do the driving. Whatever goes on, it has to be justified by the play. We just we can't allegorize it and make make an abstraction fit where it doesn't. Because remember, what the comics did, the mechanics did, is do that. Wall, you represent wall. You represent a hole in the wall. You represent a lantern. He, he's saying those abstractions are are a sign that we're missing something. So what's really important here is again how we read. How well we read what's going on. Um. Give them the answer next week. It's after. Okay. Okay. Hold on. We're going to stop here. I'm going to. This is going to be our answer to to be here. But let me just do this. Similarities between the two works, very quickly. Theseus is the founder in both works. Except here, what Theseus does is set against the east, and Ninus can't do. The lovers are reconciled in the west. What's wrong with the East? What is the West doing that's peculiar? When I talk, when I hear people talk about dead white men get this tradition out of the way, I, I'm watching Western civilization go off a cliff. Shakespeare's making it clear, Ninus couldn't do something with love. The West has. What is Theseus doing and Oberon together that makes it possible for the lovers to get back to the city? Under law. Another similarity, both men love the same one woman, right? Lysander and um, Demetrius fight for Hermia and then both of them fight for Helena. Both women fight against each other, so we see the same passions tearing people apart. The difference is in, in the West, in, in Shakespeare, the focus is on a marriage, not an ordeal. The authority is in the Father, and that's great enough to put Hermia's life at risk. So the law of the Father is crucial, but it's answered here. How? Once again, we've got to go to the forest. What's going on there that makes it possible for all this to come to Theseus, to overbear, to do something different with the law? How are we to understand that? And finally, I'm going to ask, because the play ends with a play. The mechanics put on this play. It's all about poetry. Does, does what goes on in the forest throw any light on the nature of poetry and the imagination? What the imagination makes possible in love that's impossible without it. The East has not the poetic tradition that the West does. What's going on in the forest what are we, is, is showing us something about the nature of poetry. And the fourth. Opening questions for, and then a wrap up. Next week. Next week. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Continue. Continuing. Hey, can you turn off Doug? <laughs> Always. Always.